Hello everybody, this is our second sermon looking at the book of 1 Kings. Today we're in 1 Kings chapter 2 and we're reading the whole chapter from verse 1 through to verse 46. And the title for today's sermon is Solomon's Throne is Established. Have you ever caught yourself wishing that horrible things would happen to someone who has offended you in some way? Have you ever found yourself rejoicing when a bully or a criminal has finally received their comeuppance? Sadly, I know that I have. There is something very human about this. We all have an inbuilt thirst for justice. It comes from being made in God's image. But there is a large difference between justice and revenge. And as Christians, we must face up to the fact that the Bible makes it very clear that turning the other cheek and then praying for, loving and forgiving our enemies is much more Christ-like than wishing to do them harm. Let me give us two stories from the news this week that demonstrate the difficult balance that must be found between justice and revenge. The first is the words of Joe Biden after the Islamic State terrorist attack on Kabul airport. This is what the President of America said on Friday to the perpetrators. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. And sure enough, by Saturday morning, there had already been a drone strike killing some supposed members of that terrorist organisation. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. We all understand the emotion behind those words. We all understand the pain at witnessing people suffer and the anger at the death of innocent people. We even understand that Joe Biden may feel partly responsible for the unfolding mess, as it was his order that started the withdrawal from Afghanistan in the first place. But are words as strong as this ever justified? We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Joe Biden is a practicing Christian. Can a follower of Jesus ever speak like that? The Bible shows us that as Christians we are always to stop and think. What if God treated us in the way we are advocating treating others? What if God refused to forgive or forget and hunted us down to make us pay? What if Jesus decided against the cross and opted for hellfire instead? I think it's fair to say that in that light Joe Biden's words do not look good at all. We all understand what led to them being said. It's really hard to find the balance between justice and revenge. Yeah, before anyone thinks I'm just criticising Americans, listen to a second story that came out of the States just yesterday. A Californian parole board has voted to grant prison release to the murderer of Robert F. Kennedy, the Democratic 1968 presidential candidate. Cern Cern has served 53 years in jail for shooting the frontrunner after a speech at a Los Angeles hotel, an assassination that arguably altered the course of history. At his hearing, Cern 
reportedly told parole commissioners, over half a century has passed. That young impulsive kid I was does not exist anymore. Senator Kennedy was the hope of the world and I injured and I harmed all of them and it pains me to experience that, the knowledge for such a horrible deed. Apparently this was the 16th time Sirhan had requested parole, so what made the difference this time? Well, the board's decision came after two of Robert Kennedy's own children appealed to the parole board to release their father's killer. I really do believe any prisoner who is found to be not a threat to themselves or the world should be released, Douglas Kennedy said. Wow. Here is a very different story. A very different attitude to that of Joe Biden's quote. A heinous crime was committed for which there was an appropriate need for justice to be carried out. It is right that Sirhan Sirhan was jailed and for a long time. But now that Sirhan has come to a place of repentance, now he is a changed man, mercy is appropriate. By not seeking immediate revenge, forgiveness and love has been unable to flood the scene and Robert Kennedy's children are an inspiration to us all. Justice and revenge, then, a very difficult balance to find. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Ultimately, that is why the Bible calls us to leave the judging up to God, who can always be trusted to do what is best. As believers, then, these issues always come back to a question of faithfulness. Will we put our trust in the Lord and place difficult issues into his care, or will we take matters into our own hands and inevitably fail? In our reading today, particularly in David's dying words, we see both these things. Human faithfulness and human fallibility. David's final words begin so well in verses 1 to 4. His deathbed instructions to his son Solomon, who has just succeeded him as king, begin with such heartfelt devotion, such dedication and faithfulness to God. These verses really are the high point of the chapter, so it's worth listening to them again in full. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, David said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. They are such great words. There's so much wisdom there. All of our lives would improve if we did what David instructs here. David directs Solomon to fully and wholeheartedly depend on God. He is to remain strong when the inevitable challenges come his way. He is to remain obedient when he's tempted off God's path. He is to follow God's instructions, even when the world around him is encouraging him not to bother or to go a different way entirely. Solomon is to live his life for God and through God's strength. As God's king, he is to be God's representative in all the land. Believers in Jesus today are called to nothing less. And did you hear the promise implicit through all these commands? If Solomon watched how he lived, if he sought to keep putting God first, 
God would ensure that all his promises would be kept. In other words, if Solomon sought to live a godly life, he would find himself on the path to blessing. And all the nation of Israel, which he ruled over, would experience the same. At its heart, this is the position that all believers find themselves in. God loves us, and he's made unconditional promises to us, to look over us, provide for us, and to help us on our way through life. But in response, he expects gratitude, obedience, and good behaviour. If he doesn't get it, there will be consequences. One commentator described our relationship with God in these terms. God is absolutely committed to us, like a father and mother committed to their children. When their children defy them, the parents do not cast them off. Yet the children's responsiveness is indispensable to the ongoing relationship. They cannot assume the relationship will continue satisfactorily if they flout their parents' expectations. The parents and the children live in the tension between love and obedience, promise and faithfulness. John Goldingay is absolutely right in his assessment. This is how God's people are to live within God's care. God has promised great things to us, all born out of his great love for us. But for us to go on receiving them, we need to remain humble and obedient. We need to remain single focused in our ambition and our worship. We're to put God first in everything and try and do what he wants of us. David had learnt this over years of experience, and this was his express command to his own son Solomon. David knew that if his son walked in the ways of the Lord, his reign would be a great success. David's final words expressed his great faith in God's promises and urged Solomon to be faithful in response. But sadly, and I mean that, what comes next is terribly sad. David's words did not end at verse 4, did they? After David's expression of great faithfulness towards God comes evidence of his great fallibility as a human being. For David's final, final words are far more Joe Biden than they are Douglas Kennedy. In verses 5 to 9, David goes on to give Solomon instructions on how to handle some issues that he never got round to dealing with. Now, we could be kind to David and see these as a father's concern for his son's future security, but let us not be naive. These words are nothing short of the request for bloodthirsty revenge. Joab is to be struck down and in no way allowed to rest in peace. The sons of Barzillai can be treated all right, for they were kind to David, but Solomon must ruthlessly draw blood from Shimei as he brings his grey head down to the grave. Do you remember? We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Let's be under no illusion. That is exactly what David is saying. Good King David, a man after God's own heart. Not here, he isn't. It is painfully apparent that after all the times he mentioned the Lord in verses 2 to 4, as David gives these vengeful commands, God is not mentioned at all. He doesn't get a look in. In fact, the writer of 1 Kings could not make it any clearer. In verses 2 to 4, David urged Solomon to look to God for everything. But here in verse 6, as he advocates the murder of Joab, he instructs Solomon to act with his own wisdom rather than the Lord's. Solomon is to take matters into his own hands rather than allow God to do the judging. 
Then look at verse 8. The only time God does get a mention in this bloodthirsty rant. David remembers the oath that he swore to the Lord that he would not kill Shimei. But then he fudges that oath on a technicality. He's not technically breaking that oath if he gets his son Solomon to kill Shimei for him. Or so he thinks, at least. Urging others to follow their own ideas rather than God's. Going back on promises you have made to the Lord. These are never good moves. We all instinctively know that. These words are also wrong, so immoral, so far beneath the standards that David at his best has set. You wonder what made him sink to this great low. As his death got very close, was David worried about his legacy? He shouldn't have been. He's just told Solomon that it is God who will ensure that Israel's throne is kept in his line. David really does not need to make these contingency measures. Is David looking out for his son's future welfare? Again, David should know that only God can do that once he himself has died. These requests are nothing more than David passing on sordid business he wished that he had done but never got round to. The revenge that he wanted but was too fearful of God to take, but somehow he feels can be enacted by his son instead. David is trying to keep his hands clean by getting his son to do his dirty work. Only the most blinkered readers of the Bible could come to any other conclusion. David's final words leave a very questionable legacy indeed. These crude and cynical instructions do David no credit at all. We are left in no doubt that as David died in verses 12 to 14, Israel mourned a man capable of both great faithfulness and equally great fallibility. David was human like every one of us here today. And as a human, he sometimes got the balance between justice and revenge very wrong indeed. There is a well-known phrase, isn't there, that describes what happens next in our reading. It is the phrase, like father, like son. Like father, like son. We all know what it means. Children take on the attitudes and habits of their parents. They copy their behaviour and their turns of speech. Those of you who are parents listening to this, I wonder as you reflect upon your children, in what ways do they take after you? What of your strengths have you passed on? What are you most proud of in them? What evidence is there of you teaching them and bringing them up? But perhaps more pertinently, what can you see in your children that you know comes from you that you wished you hadn't passed on? A short temper or a level of insecurity, perhaps? Maybe you can think more about that as you travel home or chat over Sunday lunch. The sad reality is that after a very good start as king, Solomon begins to show signs of corruption in verses 13 to 46. Those of you who've been following the series so far, do you remember how chapter 1 ended? Adonijah, Solomon's half-brother, who had deviously tried to steal the throne for himself, pleaded with Solomon to spare his life. He took up sanctuary at the Lord's altar and called out for mercy. And to Solomon's great credit, he allowed Adonijah to return home in peace. Solomon demonstrated that when you know God is in control, you do not have to take petty revenge on others. Well, that was chapter one. Just look at how he behaves now in the rest of chapter two, following his father's bloodthirsty instructions. First of all, 
he retracts his mercy and has Adonijah killed. Admittedly, Adonijah had made another calculated attempt to grab power by marrying David's concubine, but Solomon had him cut down. And notice I said deliberately that Solomon had him cut down, for he didn't do it himself. He got Benaiah to do his dirty work for him so his hands could remain clean. As we have said, like father, like son. Solomon then goes on to exile Abiathar the priest, purely because Abiathar had communicated with Adonijah, and despite the fact that Abiathar had served his father loyally. Next comes Joab. Joab is ruthlessly cut down in cold blood, despite him hanging on to the Lord's altar like Adonijah had done. Solomon is quite content to desecrate God's sanctuary with a man's blood in this case. It appears his ego comes above God's holiness now. Then finally in the chapter, Shimei is given an impossible ultimatum that he would never be able to keep forever. As soon as Shimei inevitably broke the conditions of his parole, Solomon had him murdered also, just as his father David had asked. Some commentators argue that Solomon's ruthlessness here in dealing with potential rivals goes much further than his father ever advised. I'm not sure that is the case. I think that is just trying to protect David's reputation. I think what we see here is a son behaving in response to his father's dying wishes. It is the ultimate like father, like son situation. Whatever is true, the writer of One Kings is not portraying Solomon as a wise, benevolent ruler here. Far from it. Solomon is acting like a despot who crushes any attempt against him. Rather than trusting in God to protect his throne, Solomon is angry and jealous and takes matters into his own hands. Notice again how between verses 13 and 46, the Lord hardly gets a look in. He's just not in Solomon's thoughts. The only time God is really mentioned is when Solomon makes two errant predictions. After murdering Joab in verse 33, he predicts that God's peace will be on his reign. Then on murdering Shimei in verse 45, he predicts that God will bless him. Both of those predictions prove ultimately to be unfounded. It is Solomon's reign that tears Israel apart in the end. These false predictions then are a sure sign that God is not at all okay with Solomon's ruthless, vengeful and very violent behaviour in this chapter. Solomon's character in chapter 2 of 1 Kings is so different from chapter 1. As readers, we must ask then the question, what was it that corrupted him? What was it that turned him from a man of mercy into a cynical tyrant who so badly abused his position? Was it his father's dying instructions? Surely must be in part. Was it the newfound power and privilege that came with the crown? Well, probably that too. Whatever is the case, Solomon's reign is compromised from the very beginning, and it starts going wrong with his failure to find the difficult balance between justice and revenge. There is much for us to think on here. As believers, we will need to be strong at times and stand up courageously to do what is right. We will at times need to help victims find justice. But we are always to place our trust in God to protect, defend and vindicate us, leaving ultimate justice to him and never taking revenge into our own hands. It is fair to say that 1 Kings 2 is a pretty depressing read. 
after the high point of David's faithfulness in urging Solomon to follow God closely, it's all downhill, finishing in a blood-soaked mire of human sin. There is a solemn warning here about the fallibility of the human heart, the ease in which sin is passed on from one generation to another, and the devastating consequences of it all. This is then probably a chapter we've never paid much attention to before, and certainly not one we'd be urging non-Christians to read at the start of their journey to faith. But is there really nothing good that we can take away to encourage us this week? Well, there is one thing, something really important. Amongst David's fallibility and Solomon's corruption, amongst power grabs and bloodthirsty revenge, amongst political manoeuvrings and human arrogance, there is one ray of light. With all this talk of human rulers and human kings, there is one ruler and one king above them all. Despite the mess that David and Solomon are making, God is still in control. There is a telling phase in this chapter. It comes twice, tolling like a bell at the beginning and the end of the chapter, trying to force our attention upwards. Verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. And then verse 46. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. Those statements do not declare that Solomon was behaving how God wanted. What they declare is that God's purposes were being achieved regardless. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God had made a promise to David. His throne would be established. His descendants would reign upon it forever and ever, eventually bringing an everlasting kingdom of peace into the world. Solomon is just the first step in achieving that plan. He certainly was not the last. That would only come when Jesus of Nazareth, David's greatest son, came to earth. Jesus, the great Prince of Peace, not the bloodthirsty despot after revenge. God was working on that plan even while Solomon was acting as badly as he was. You see, God works through genuine human beings to achieve his ends. Frankly, what other choice does he have? This is how he made the world to be, with human beings as his representatives on earth. God has chosen to work through the likes of David and Solomon and through the likes of you and me. Human beings capable at times of great faithfulness and great fallibility at others. It's purely by God's grace and mercy that we have a part to play in his work to rescue his world. Let us be in no doubt that the purposes of the kingdom of God are not achieved through violence and greed, but in spite of them. We're not to place our hope in human kings, politicians or leaders, but solely in Jesus, the King of Kings. We're not to place our hope in human weapons of war, but on the cross of peace that has the power to forgive, heal and unite us all. We're not to place our trust in human resources, but to trust in the Lord who is in control of all things. This is the good news. God always keeps his promises. He preserved David's line through Solomon purely so he could bring Jesus into the world. We can trust today that God knows exactly what he's doing, even as the world lies in chaos around us. And it's because of this that we can seek to love and show mercy to others, even those who have hurt us, rather than taking revenge. 
I urge us all today, let us place our trust in the King, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one and nothing else.